0: Anger Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning once again, beloved. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. It's happening in China. North Korea is the place with the worst violations. Saudi Arabia is a major offender. So is the Sudan. And it's not new. From the 40s and 50s A.D. right up to the present moment, right up until report we heard just a few moments ago, it's been going on some of the stories are well recorded in history like nero the roman emperor who wrapped them in animal skins and fed them to wild animals and at other times doused them in oil and used them to light his gardens in one sense the transatlantic slave trade can be considered a form of it there was the inquisition where roman catholics did the protestants protestants would return the favor to roman catholics There were the dissenters and covenanters, Protestants who received it from other Protestants. An estimated 75 million have been killed because of it. 65% of those were killed not in the ancient world, but in the 20th century. It's estimated that some 200 million people are facing it today. What am I talking about? Talking about the persecution of Christians. There seems to never have been an age where men, women, and children who love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ have not been persecuted because of that love, because of their faith. And today we hear a lot about religious tolerance and religious understanding. The talking heads on TV and the politicians are always telling us how much we need to seek understanding and how much we need to get along with one another. And in major Western countries, at least, it seems generally the case that the ones who are considered intolerant are the Christians. The Christians are deemed the narrow-minded ones the ones with ancient and arcane ideas that need to be updated or abandoned. The Christian is seen as dangerous. But isn't it interesting that when it comes to religious liberty, it's major Western countries that preserve that most basic and fundamental human right, the the right to worship God in accord to one's own conscience. The TV pundits and the experts almost never appear on primetime shows to denounce the fact that most every predominantly Muslim country have laws that prevent the free exercise of religion and the conversion of Muslims. That's the case in many Asian countries as well. The seat of intolerance isn't the West, and it isn't the Christians. And yet it is, since the time of Christ, the Christian, that faces persecution almost everywhere on the globe. What are we to make of these things? Some Christians would have us think that something is wrong. Their view of the Christian life is that things are supposed to get better and better until Jesus returns. Christians are supposed they tell us to gain more and more and society is to be made better and better then Christ returns but the history and the statistics suggest something very different not only do the history and the statistics suggest something different Jesus teaches something very different we see that in our text this morning as we continue our study of what Jesus taught his apostles as he sent them out on their first short-term mission assignment. And this morning we're going to focus particularly on verses 16 to 31 of Matthew 10. But I want to read for us again the entire section for context. So if you look with me in Matthew chapter 9 beginning at verse 35. and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddaeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or in any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts, Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master, If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body But cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even in the very hairs of your head. Excuse me. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth. He will certainly not lose his reward. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, again, we thank you for your word. And we pray that we should never grow tired or dull. At hearing it, at reading it, at studying it, at considering your truth and applying it to our heart. We pray, O Lord, that we would not take for granted this great privilege you have given us in this land to freely assemble, to freely discourse about the mysteries of heaven, to be fed plentifully from your word and in fellowship with one another. Oh, Lord, help us not to take that for granted, but to delight in it. And not only to delight in it, but to use it for your advantage, for the advantage of your kingdom, for the advantage of those who are not so blessed, who live in lands officially and openly hostile to you and to your people. Grant, Lord, that we should hear your voice afresh from your word and that we would be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider verses 16 to 31, I would wish that we would consider three thoughts from these 15 or so verses. First off, that risk is right. That risk is right. Secondly, that even in our risk-taking, Jesus is with us. The Lord is with us. And thirdly, therefore, we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear. Risk is right. Jesus is with us. And therefore, we do not fear as his people. Our first point, risk is right. We see that really in verse 16. Jesus says to the apostles, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Turns out that the world is a zoo. It's full of animals. Sheep, wolves, snakes, doves. But this is no petting zoo. This is no place where we go to coddle and cuddle with warm, fuzzy little animals. It's a dangerous place where some are vulnerable And others devour. These are sheep. We are sheep. Being sent out amongst. Flesh eating. Wolves. Notice here now. Jesus in verse 16. Very intentionally. Sends his people. Into danger. He sends us out. Helpless and defenseless. Tasty morsels among ravenous wolves. But now we must not lose sight of something. This is the same compassionate Jesus who weeps over souls. And this is the same Jesus who has all authority in heaven and in earth. And we see him here, given his compassion and given his authority, risk-taking with his people. Why? Why is it that after having saved us from such a treacherous world, why does he now turn us and send us back into that world? It's because risk is right. When it comes to the rescue of more souls, risk taking is the right thing to do. And, and we're not to think that taking risk in the work of missions is somehow an unnecessary waste. We're not to think that Jesus is here wasting the lives of, of his people. Jesus does not waste the lives of, of people whom he purchases with his own blood. The father does not sacrifice the son in turn to waste us, to spend our lives frivolously. That's not what's happening here. Some parents I've met, um, Christian and non-Christian parents are definitely afraid that their children who become Christians and become zealous for Christ will will go out onto the mission field. They some parents sadly see that as a kind of waste. They had other plans for them, plans for a comfortable life, a successful life, they tell us. Perhaps life as a as a doctor or a lawyer, uh A family with with children and so on. They don't want, quote, all of that, quote, thrown away for a reckless life on the mission field. But beloved, to live for comfort and ease instead of gospel adventure, that is a wasted life. To live in such a way as to suppose that the only thing that matters is our largesse, our comfort in this life. That is a wasted, frivolous life. I mean, suppose you could, particularly if you're a young person here, you could go to school and study what you wanted. And suppose you could graduate with the grades you desire, top of your class. And suppose that you could get the job or the career or start the business that you've you've always wanted to be in. Suppose you made all the money that you desire. Well, then what? Suppose maybe there's marriage then and children. Well, then what? Maybe a nice home, a couple of nice cars. And then? Or well, maybe retirement after a life that way. Maybe retirement in the Caribbean or the Canary Islands or perhaps even the French Riviera. Well, then what? As my mother is fond of saying, you can't take it with you when you leave this life. Is there nothing to live for beyond ourselves? I'm afraid that too many Christians, particularly in the comfortable West, live this way. We live in such a way as to avoid risk. We live in such a way as to to pad our bank accounts. And we live in such a way as to demonstrate that we love the things of this world. And it's those Christians who live that way who are wasting their lives Who are collecting seashells, who are gathering trinkets and whatnots and piling their parlors with things that will burn away when Christ comes. That's the wasted life, not the life of risk-taking and glory-seeking, the life of missions spreading the, the love and the glory of Christ our Savior we should note something from verse 16. It's really a sobering reality that that cuts across the grain of so much comfort and ease-seeking activity and so much teaching that, that encourages that kind of comfort. Notice something. God does intentionally put his people, you and me, in harm's way. Jesus says here plainly, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. But when he does, we need only remember that he is treating us as sons, that God is treating us as his own children. Did not the Father intentionally and with purpose send his one and only Son into a world full of sinful wolves? And did he not do that knowing, intending that his son would take upon himself that rugged wooden cross? That he would be brutalized, that he would be scandalized, that he would be stricken, that he would be rejected and hated and cursed among men. Did not the father send the son? And did not the father purpose to take that risk, nay, to make that sacrifice? For us and for our salvation. Well, it is just like the father and it is just like the son then to turn now having redeemed us with such a risk and such a sacrifice to then send us to make risks and sacrifices of our own that really reflect what Christ has done for us. To send us back in among the wolves, which wolves we were that some further souls might be saved might be rescued risk is right risk is Christ like now we're not to think that what jesus has in mind here is blind or foolish risk living a faithful christian life is a risky proposition but we're we're not to we're not to as it were enter into this Unaware. So look at the end of verse 16. Jesus says there, therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. He's urging the, the coupling of discernment and wisdom and insight with purity. Then look down at verse 17. Be on your guard against men. It's a watchful life. Down to verse 23. You see there where Jesus says, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. So we're not to think that all risk-taking is courage. Just as we're not to think that all risk-avoidance is wisdom. Yeah, cowardice sometimes masks itself as wisdom. Just as foolishness sometimes masks itself as bravery. We willingly go into dangerous situations, but we do so combining discernment and wisdom we do so watchfully and though we risk our persons we don't we don't throw away our persons there are times to stand and times to flee and we depend upon Christ to give us that wisdom and why this risk taking well in all of this I think we're to see something of the preciousness of souls Jonathan spoke to it last night in his presentation's Souls are inestimably valuable. They are incredibly rare and precious. No two souls are alike. My soul and your soul will never be created again. Each soul is unique, therefore, each soul is priceless, rare, and costly to save. And this is why gospel risk is right. But even though we risk, we encourage that secondly, Jesus is with us. Christ is with us. Part of what we learn about Jesus throughout this passage is that he never forsakes his people. Indeed, the Bible teaches us that far from being forsaken by the Savior, he shall never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, he condescends to make us as it were part of his own body to unite us inseparably with himself we're forever spiritually joined with christ he's the head and and we the eyes the knees the arms and the the other parts of the body the lord is with us and indeed we are in him And we see this in our text, for example, in the Lord's promise in verses 19 to 20 to speak for his disciples in the midst of persecution. When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The disciples need not take any thought about their defense. God, the Holy Spirit, who resides in us, who empowers us, speaks for the apostles and will give us what to say. And so intimate is the union between Christ and his people that the Spirit of God speaks through us and dwells in us. But notice something else running through the text. It's what makes life with Christ a risky life. Precisely because the Christian is united with Christ and the Christian identifies himself with the Lord Jesus. For that very reason, persecution comes. Verses 17 and 18. Jesus says there, be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogue. Why? He says right there, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Look also at verse 22. What does Jesus say? Very clearly there, all men will hate you because of me. The world does not love our Savior. When Jesus said it plainly in John chapter 15, Verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And then in verse 20 of that same chapter, Jesus tells his disciples, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The Christian is to expect suffering. Christian to is to expect persecution. Paul would say all those who would live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. And Jesus gives us the, the explanation here in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 10. It's where he says to them, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? They called Jesus demon possessed. They called him Beelzebub. An insult meaning Lord of the flies or Lord of dung, prince of demons in the ancient world. If that's how they regarded a sinless, your savior surely that's how they will treat us who follow him we come in his name and among the lost his name is not welcome and so we are not welcome but you see here the pattern of the Christian life first comes suffering then comes glory We see that throughout the scripture. We saw that with Joseph sold by his brothers into slavery. By the time we get to the end of Genesis, God has exalted him. First came suffering, then came glory. We saw that with David, the the shepherd boy who would be made king. First came the, the persecution of Saul, who hunted him like an animal. Then came glory. The greatest king Israel would ever see. We see it with Paul and Peter, the the other apostles. First came great suffering, mocked and flogged and beaten and left for dead. And now glorified with Christ. And we see it with Christ himself. He took upon himself the likeness of human flesh, was mocked and beaten, scourged, spat upon. First came the suffering of the cross than the glory of resurrection. That is the pattern of the Christian life. And it is a blessed life. This is what Jesus has been teaching his apostles, his disciples, since the beginning of the gospel. If you turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, look there at the end of the Beatitudes, the last Beatitude that he gives his disciples is this promise, this description of what the blessed life is. Part of what the blessed life is, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First comes suffering, then comes the glory of the kingdom. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. To be persecuted and insulted is to join great company. To join the company of the prophets. To join the company of Christ himself. And to enter into a great reward. I don't think our God who inspired this scripture uses adjectives loosely. I don't think he is just sort of talkative and throws in extra words. So when he says, great is your reward, I trust that that reward is great indeed. Great is the reward of all those who suffer in the cause of Christ for his name, for his righteousness, for his sake, for his kingdom. And he is always with us. Indeed, he is our reward. And so therefore, we do not fear. Verses 26 to 31 of, of chapter 10. Three times Jesus instructs his, his apostles and us to not give in to fear. You see it there in verse 26. So do not be afraid of them. Again, in verse 28, do not be afraid and there in verse 31, so don't be afraid. Fear is a natural response to, to harm, to risk. And in these five verses, Jesus teaches his apostles and teaches us by his word that there is an appropriate fear and an inappropriate fear. And part of the trick of living boldly for Christ Risking all for Christ is understanding that difference between appropriate and inappropriate fear. Fearing, as it were, the right thing and not fearing the wrong things. And so the appropriate fear that Jesus points to is in verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell it is god who can destroy both soul and body in hell it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy god we live in a society that regularly that routinely forgets that lives as though that were not true it'd be a good thing if you hear this morning you're not a christian to meditate on the second half of verse 28. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Rejecting the Lord Jesus in this life, my non-Christian friend, will lead to an unimaginable and horrible And unending judgment. Fear God. And it's good for us to remember as Christians as well. Not because we stand in fear of God. For for God has no more wrath toward us. He has satisfied his wrath on, on Christ, his son. He bears anger toward us no more. Only love and mercy and grace. But but these verses are given to apostles to motivate them in their mission. And so it ought to be motivation for us as well. We cannot be slack in the work of missions and evangelism precisely because those who perish in sin face an eternity of agonizing judgment the hands of this holy God who can destroy body and soul. We need to be urgent in this work. We need to do this work as though there's no tomorrow. For most certainly there are people dying every day for whom there is no tomorrow. Only judgment. And so this is to be an appropriate kind of fear, even in our life, the kind of reverence for God, the kind of trembling at his holiness that moves us with urgent compassion in the proclamation of the gospel. But then there's also an inappropriate fear, namely the fear of man we may shrink back from this urgent task of evangelism and missions and church planting because we fear the the cursings and the threats and the faces of men. Jesus tells us not to be afraid of men. And he gives us three reasons why we need not fear men. These are three reasons on top of the fact that he is with us and our lives are hid in him. First of all, you see it in verses 26 and 27. He's telling us basically that man cannot stop the march of the gospel. Verses 26 and 27. So do not be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim it from the roofs. I mean, the light of the gospel will shine. And it will shine in such a way that it will bring all the hidden things of darkness into that light. The gospel will march. The truth will march. This glorious message of salvation through faith in Christ will go on. And because God has pledged to put his power, his saving power in that message, and that message will not be stopped, we need not fear to proclaim that message. We need not fear to trumpet it from the top of roofs, to speak it loudly, even as Christ has assuringly whispered it to us in those moments. So we need not fear man. And we need not fear man because man cannot touch our souls. That's the first part of verse 28. They may harm the body. We hear this terrible report of the persecution of of our brothers and sisters in India. Even this morning. Even now. Pillaged. Raped. Murdered. Worse. Tortured. And we, far be it from us, to sin against them by not praying for them. But they need not fear what man does to their body. For after they have done what they do with our bodies, after that, they can do nothing. And the most enduring, the most important, the most real part of us is not this earthly tabernacle. But the souls encased. That our souls are in Christ's hand, they're in the Father's hand, and and no man can pluck us out of his hand. When they've done with our bodies, they've done all they can do. But here's one of the promises of the gospel, why we should not fear even the torture of our bodies. Because in the resurrection, we lay down this mortality, and we're clothed in immortality. We lay down this perishable, corruptible body and we are clothed with an imperishable, incorruptible body, suitable for gazing into the glorious face of Christ for all eternity. This body is temporary. It's a loner. And we're going to trade it in for a new one, a glorious one. And our souls are kept by the omnipotent power of God until we enter into that inheritance which Christ has purchased for us. So we do not fear men. And we do not fear men because our persecution is not a measure of our worth in God's sight. You see that in verses 29 to 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Sometimes we can think that our standing before God or God's pleasure with us is somehow associated with our condition in this life. So that, so that if we suffer, for example, or, or if we lack in some way, for example, that must mean that God is displeased with us. Actually, that's a pagan thought. It's not a distinctively Christian thought. God could never be more pleased with us than, than he is pleased with us as we are joined together with Christ. He looks on his son, Jesus, and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's as though he says the same thing of us when we come to Christ. Because when we come to Christ, he looks no longer on our faults and our weaknesses, but he looks upon us as though we were Christ, clothed in his righteousness. And we hear from the father, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Not famine, not persecution, not sword, nothing. And we are far more precious in his sight than sparrows or anything else in his creation. For we are made uniquely in his image and made to bear his glory, to reveal his tremendous glory to all of creation. And so we need not fear. He has numbered the hairs of our head. He pays particular and detailed attention to our lives. And you can't offer a penny or a farthing or anything for our souls. We're not purchased with blood, or excuse me, we're not purchased with gold or silver. But by the precious blood of Christ, the Father loves us. And nothing separates us from that love. And that persecution is, is not an indication of his disfavor. It is indeed a badge, a badge of our association with him, of our being united with him even in his sufferings what Paul writes in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 verse 5 for just as the sufferings of Christ overflow into our lives so also through Christ our comfort overflows God is with us even in the suffering and so we do not fear so persecution is a fact of the Christian life the practical question becomes then how do we prepare for it and how do we endure it? And I'd like to close with about four suggestions real quickly. Number one, we prepare for and we endure suffering through prayer. It's the bended knee that prepares us for suffering and persecution. Is speaking with our Father that prepares us. As I was thinking about this meditation this morning, I realized that I'm more like Peter who said to the Lord, whatever happens, I'll be with you. I'll I'll die for you. And then subsequently denied the Lord three times. I am in my frailty and in my flesh more like Peter. And you remember Christ said to Peter, I've prayed for you. So how much more ought we to pray for ourselves in preparation for this life of risk that brings glory to Christ? And secondly, we've been saying this all alone. that We should not, in our preparation and endurance of persecution, we should not seek to avoid it because of fear. We don't avoid it. We don't run from it for the wrong motives. We stand. If we persecute persecuted because of Christ who lives in us, then there's no healthy way to avoid persecution without in effect denying Christ. So we stand like those first apostles in Acts chapter 5 who, who rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. So we pray and we learn to stand. Thirdly, We learn to rejoice. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Literally, Jesus says, be happy and jump and shout for joy. Well, why? I mean, we don't typically think of that, of persecution being a a joyful event. And indeed, the, the persecution itself isn't. No, we rejoice and we jump for gladness for several reasons. As I just mentioned, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. We rejoice and we are glad in our persecution because compared to all of this life's trinkets, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 33 to 35, tell us that we have better promises and a better inheritance in Christ. Nothing in this life compares to the life that we're going to. And we rejoice and we're glad in our sufferings because in our, in our weakness, the power of God is made manifest. And we rejoice. We, we count all kinds of trials as pure joy because it, it leads to, as James tells us in James chapter 1, perseverance and, and spiritual maturity. Nothing weakens our Christian lives like comfort and ease like being spiritual couch potatoes. And yet nothing nothing fits us for heaven, like being in the game, running the race, fighting the good fight, laying down our lives in the cause of Christ's glory. And we rejoice in persecution and suffering. We accept it with joy, because it is, as I said, evidence of a living and genuine faith. Here's how the Apostle Peter, who would have heard these words in Matthew 10, here's how he instructed Christians in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Persecution of God's people always works out to their divine blessing, always works out to their glory and to their joy with Christ. My non-Christian friend, you've been Perhaps considering the claims of the gospel, what it means to follow Christ. Part of what it means is to participate in his suffering. I'm not now inviting you to an easy life. This life is costly, it costs the life of the Son of God. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Come to Christ. Turn from your sins and place your faith solely in him as the crucified and resurrected son of God who pays the penalty for your sin. Who takes your place. Enter into his life. And that life will include suffering. But beloved, that life will also include eternal joy. Great reward. Everlasting life. Come to the Savior. Come to him. Remember what God's word says in Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Then the apostle goes on to say, nothing, nothing, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing divides the Christian from the eternal love of his savior. God has not forsaken us in our suffering and mistreatment. And so we endure it Knowing that we've been found worthy to suffer for his name, knowing that we need not fear men, for Christ is with us and we are in him. Let's pray together. Again, Father, we remember those saints in India fleeing to the forest. Hiding from persecutors. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them in this time of trouble, that you would be near to them, and they, O oh Lord, near to you. We pray, O oh Lord, that those forests would be filled with singing, be filled with an unimaginable rejoicing. We pray that their joy, O oh Lord, that your joy would be their strength. And we pray that as they rejoice in the truth of the gospel, that their, their captors and their persecutors would be confounded, that they would be struck that in the midst of such horrible mistreatment, your people have joy. And we pray that even their testimony in the midst of this suffering, Lord, would work gospel power in that land. That even the captors, like like so many Sauls, standing by the side holding the clothes of the persecuted, that even those captors, Lord, would have their hearts overturned and bow and worship you. Lord God, you do all things well. Even the risks you take with our lives are risks that are done well, risks that bring you glory and risks that bring us joy. For, O oh Lord, our greatest joy is to see you glorified even if it's in our suffering. So we pray that you would make us ready. We pray that you would make us strong. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us by your spirit to stand and to speak boldly. We pray that we would do that especially in this land of freedom. And that we would stand even for those, Lord, who do not know this freedom. That your glory would be known and your gospel would be spread. Thank you for this convention. Use this convention to spark a new and fresh outpouring of your spirit, a revival, a worldwide revival of missions, a worldwide revival in the preaching of your gospel, a glorious, never before seen harvest of souls. Be pleased to to make Bangor the the spark, O Lord, that lights the fires of revival. Bless us and use us. We pray. Our lives are yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.